Well, good morning. It's good to be together with you on the Lord's Day. And um, Dave and Tay, miss you guys. And glad for you all that Dave and Tay are here because they're great and amazing. And so glad for the blessing that I know they are to this church. Um, I bring greetings from Redeeming Grace and glad Justin was able to be here a couple weeks ago. And I'm glad to be able to be here with you today, and Lord willing, next week as well. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 1 in two parts, uh, verses 1 to 4 today, and the rest of it uh, next, next Sunday. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a pleasure to be able to um, be with you. I haven't, I, I was able to meet a few of you this morning, but, you know, sometimes I think about um, our churches, and, and 22 years ago, my wife and I moved from California to be a part of what was then Fairfax Covenant Church and has become Redeeming Grace Church. And we love our church, and we're so thrilled to be able to be here and be part of it. And I trust and hope you're having the same experience with this church. And sometimes I I think, what does Jesus see when he looks down from heaven at us? And uh, I I think we can, uh, I speak for myself, I know I can become so aware of what's going on in our own congregation. Sometimes I forget, you know what, we're part of the church of Fairfax County, Right? We're part of the Church of Northern Virginia. We're part of the body of Christ. And so uh, even though I haven't had a chance to, to meet uh, most of you, it's just a pleasure, uh, brothers and sisters, to be serving uh, the same Lord in the same gospel, in the same kingdom, on the same great commission with you. So it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, we're in 1 John 1. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning. So if you can open your Bibles, please. And... Um, Please keep them open or keep your devices on or whatever you need to do to be able to look at the text as we go through the, the passage this morning. Here's, here's God's word to us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Lord, we have received a great salvation in Christ. As we gather on the Lord's day, you have transformed Sundays into a day of worship and gathering with your people. We thank you for this great salvation. Lord, we know that if we neglect this salvation, we will drift away from those most important things. And so I pray that this text and this sermon would be a means of grace, that we would be a people who do not drift away from Christ, who do not neglect such a great salvation, but rejoice in it, are thrilled by it, dazzle us freshly this morning with Christ. And as we scatter into the world, send us as his ambassadors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this text recently for 
our own church back in September, it made me think of uh, Pilgrim's Progress and a kid's version of that that we used with our kids as our kids were growing up. It's called Dangerous Journey. And I want to just tell you a little story from Dangerous Journey as we, as we get started this morning. So if you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is this traveler and he's, he's on his way, journeying through life on his way to the celestial city. And um, for part of the journey, he has a companion traveling with him, and his name is Hopeful. They're on what's called the King's Highway. And as they're traveling along on this highway, the King's Highway, they decide to take a shortcut. You probably can guess where that's going, right? You know how that sometimes turns out. So as they take this shortcut, they get lost. It gets dark, and they end up in a storm. So when they wake up in the morning, they're captured by this giant whose name is Despair, and they're taken to a prison called Doubting Castle. So you can see this giant Despair, and he's got this terrible place called Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle is just terrible in every way. First, they're hungry and also thirsty, but they're also lonely because there's nobody else there with them, and they're beaten and humiliated by this cruel giant who's urging them to take their own lives. They grow weaker and weaker as they stay there. And when it seems that all is lost, Christian remembers that he has in his pocket a key. And the key is called promise. And so he takes the key out and he's able to get the key into the lock and he's able to get the old rusty lock to open and swing the swing uh, to unlock and swing the door open just in time uh, to escape the giant despair, get out of Doubting Castle and make their way back onto the King's Highway. So here we are on the King's Highway. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're on your way to the same destination that Christian and Hopeful were and that is the celestial city, right? But you know, sometimes, and several people mentioned this during the service already this morning, sometimes between here and the finish line, we have trouble, don't we? Sometimes we have difficulties. Sometimes we have doubts. Do you know, even the most mature and sincere Christians sometimes find themselves in Doubting Castle. I've been there. You might even find this morning you're singing as we, we were singing you're singing of the goodness of God but you're aware as you're singing that it's almost like you're being held back because there are these these doubts there there's this giant despair that's 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 bothering you that you're suffering with this morning and doubting castle is not a fun place to be you can feel isolated and lonely there you can be afraid you can feel like there's nobody else that understands. Maybe you feel like nobody else can relate to what you're experience, experiencing. And then we remember there is an enemy of our souls, right? He wants to keep you in that place. He wants to push you deeper into doubt and despair. And, you know, if you've arrived this morning with your soul in Doubting Castle, well, you've come to the right place. The Lord's day is a good place to bring your doubts and being with God's people is the right place to be. And I want to encourage you, if you took that step, you, this may be the hardest thing you did all week, to get yourself out of bed and by faith come gather with the saints. And you know, if you're not struggling with doubts right now, I can pretty much guarantee if you live long enough, you will. 
And I can guarantee for sure that you will have friends and may have some right now who struggle with doubts, who find themselves under the, the rule of, of the giant despair at different points in their lives. Because, you know, doubts are a normal part of the Christian life. We don't need to be ashamed of doubts. We don't need to shy away from doubts. And, and it's, it's simply not true that you're the only one that's experiencing that. We all have doubts at different points and at, and at different ways. And so may this be the kind of church where it's actually easy to talk about doubts. It's welcomed and encouraged and greeted with humility and warmth and friendly kindness, that goodness and mercy that we sang about already. We need help. We all need help in making progress on the King's Highway. And so when I ask you this morning, do you have doubts about Christianity? Or maybe do you have doubts about where you are as a Christian or whether you are a Christian? Doubts can arise from lots of places. We live in a largely post-Christian culture. We were just talking, I went in and we had our little pre-meeting meeting meeting at, at Redeeming Grace this morning before I came over here. And we were just talking about we're a mile from the, from the George Mason campus. We're talking about the, the change over time in the campus ministries and how each year that goes by, there are fewer and fewer people, college freshmen coming in who are committed Christians. And that's just part of the world that, that we live in. Living in a, an increasingly post-Christian or secular culture often puts us as Christians out of step with how our neighbors are living. And we can have this sense of, am I crazy to be following Jesus? Am I the only one? Like, what, what do they see that, I, that I, I don't see? We can find doubts arising there. Sometimes we find the doubts don't arise from outside in the culture, but they can actually arise from inside in the church. Sometimes our experience in church isn't perfect. I don't know if you've had that experience yet. I don't know what life is like here, but I can tell you at Redeeming Grace Church, we got warts. We have trouble. The problem is we're a bunch of sinners all trying to get together and serve Jesus. And that doesn't always go flawlessly. And so sometimes, sometimes even Christians don't act like Christians. Sometimes churches can look more like the world than like God's kingdom. And when you're not sure who to believe or what to believe, where do you go? Well, I want to encourage you. John's letters... These letters we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are a great place to bring your doubts, your questions, your disappointments. I want to give you just a very quick tour before we do our little mini two-part sermon series here because I, I want you to have the, the, the background to what's going on in these letters because the goal of these letters, what John the Apostle is trying to do, what the Holy Spirit has done in leaving these letters with us is to provide a means for Christians to grow in confidence and assurance of who Christ is and of your place in him. Okay, that's what these letters are about. So the author of these letters doesn't provide his name as sometimes we have in some of our New Testament letters, but he does call himself the elder in 2nd and 3rd John. And clearly he was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry and his writing uh, style, his vocabulary, the themes are so similar to the Gospel of John that we have every reason to believe that the author is John, one of the 12 disciples, the, the, the son of, uh, of Zebedee. So these three letters were written 
near the end of the first century. So like 60 years after Jesus died and rose again, John is writing these letters. He's also writing the book of Revelation. First John, it, it's, it's, it's an epistle. It's called the first letter of John in, in your Bible. But it doesn't start like a traditional letter, right? It doesn't have that greeting and, 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 and grace and peace and, and, and so on. It's kind of more like a sermon. And um, the situation that calls forth these, these letters is this. This is why John is writing. It was tough. John is writing not to one particular church, but to a group of churches, probably the same group of churches you read about in Revelation 2 and 3 in what's now Western Turkey. There had been false teachers at work in this group of churches. And so John says in chapter 2 of this letter, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, there were people who were trying to deceive Christians, just like you and your church, but they'd been in church with them and they were trying to deceive them. What happened next was these false teachers and probably a bunch of their followers too, they all left. They, they moved out of, of those churches. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So what you have here is it's a first century church split, right? So that's what's going on here. And the impact is these Christians who are left in the churches are left with doubts. They're left with uncertainty. They've lost confidence. And maybe you've had that experience. Hey, how, how, come, how come those people left? Do, do they know something I don't know? Are they, are they seeing something I'm not seeing? Am I blind? Like, what am I missing? They seem so confident. I, I don't understand. And so John is writing to expose these deceivers and their false teaching and to restore the confidence of these believers. He's going to do that by circling through three themes. If you read through 1 John, you'll find over and over, like, a, like watching clothes tumble in a dryer, you're going to see three things over and over. He's, he's going to talk about how you live, the moral test, who you love, the social test, and what you believe, the doctrinal test. And he's just going to repeat those three themes over and over. He's also going to con- continually remind them of the work of the Holy Spirit. But to get them set up to be able to talk about those things, he's got to start with the most important thing first, and that's Christ. So the goal here he gives in chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that's the most important word in that sentence, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing in a context of a, of, of a need for assurance, of a lack of confidence, of, of doubts. Now, to get there, he starts with the most important thing, with the foundation. This letter is, is a, an answer to the question, how can I be sure about Christianity? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, thanks for coming. This is a great place to be. And questions are welcome. And so the first question is, how can I be sure about Christianity? That's where he starts this letter. And then the rest of the letter, he's going to cycle through helping answer this question, how can I be sure that I'm a Christian? How can I be sure I'm on the right track, on the right path? So this morning, we're going to deal with this question, how can I be sure about Christianity? And there are two fundamental answers that he gives in these first four verses. The first is objective. It's the incarnation. The second is subjective. It's the experience of fellowship 
with other Christians and with the Father and Christ. So let's start where John starts. As we, as we gather together this morning, what is the core of Christianity? If, if someone asked you, like, what are, the, what are the basics? What are the foundations? What are the most important things? Oftentimes when people think about Christianity, they think about what people do. They think about behaviors. Well, Christians shouldn't act like that, or Christians should act like this, or what would Jesus buy or do or sell or whatever. And, and, and often it can be sort of behavioral. Uh, uh, other times people can think about Christianity as, as sort of the, a, a, an influence that's supposed to transform culture, but that's not where John starts. Christianity doesn't start with a particular set of ethics or behaviors or doesn't start with, with uh, the, the intention to transform culture. It starts with a person. Now, there are behaviors involved. There is transformation involved, but it starts with a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to how John explains this, and it's kind of a riddle because he, when he talks, if you, if you highlight or circle or notice key words in here that are repeated, the word which occurs in here a whole bunch of times. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we was with the Father, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. What's he talking about? Well, let's unravel the riddle as, as to what or who this, this which is. So back to verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, key word, made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which, there's that word again, was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now he's talking about a person here, right? But he, he, he's not starting with the who, he's starting with describing Jesus in a different way. And I love how the Bible has all these different ways of talking about the most important things. All these different ways of talking about salvation, the gospel, Jesus Christ. And so here we find three vital facts about Jesus. First, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was from the beginning. Look back at verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Now, John uses this phrase from the beginning a whole bunch of times in this letter, and he doesn't always use it in the same way. Sometimes he's talking about the beginning of your faith in Christ. Sometimes he's talking about the beginning of, of Christ appearing on earth. But here, I think he's talking about the beginning of everything, right? Now, the reason I think this is because it's the beginning of his letter, and the beginning of his Bible starts with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The eternal God brought the universe into existence by speaking words. That's where the Bible begins. Now, when John writes his gospel, which he wrote previous to writing this letter, he parallels that, and he says, in the beginning was the word. How did God create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke forth the universe into existence, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, the word was already there when the beginning happened. The eternal word was present at the beginning. So, that which was from the beginning. Before there was an 
earth, an earth, before there was a universe, there was an eternal God. That which was from the beginning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was from the beginning. He is eternal. And, and yet, something spectacular, unexpected happened. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now, if you, John was a, a, a good Jewish brother, and if you understand first century Judaism, you know no one can see God, right? God's invisible. In fact, to see God would be to die, right? But he says, that which was from the beginning, we've heard, seen, touched with our hands, and the life was made manifest. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about what we're about to celebrate as we come into the Christmas season. He's talking about Advent. He's talking about the Advent of the eternal God, the Son, taking on flesh and coming to live amongst us, being manifest amongst us. Now, he's talking about this miraculous moment when the Son of God became a human like us and called disciples like John to walk on life's road with him. And so he, he says, look, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Think about this. You're reading a letter from a guy who knew Jesus so directly, he was, he was an eyewitness. He heard him teach. He saw him heal. He saw him die on a cross. He was there. He saw him in his resurrected state. He touched him before and after the resurrection. You know the power of personal presence, right? Like we've all lived through COVID, right? So you, you, know, you know the Zoom experience, right? Separated from everybody. You're just seeing people on screens or maybe you're just, just hearing people. And then do you remember what it was like after you'd been separated? Maybe you were separated as a church or maybe you'd been separated from family members you hadn't been able to visit or, or friends or even coworkers. And do, do you remember what it was like to be able to come into the actual physical presence of other people? Isn't that amazing? Do you realize how much you missed that? Do you know what John is saying? John is saying, I got to do that with the Son of God. I didn't, it wasn't just a revelation from an angel. It wasn't just a book I read. It wasn't just something I dreamed up. No, I saw him. I heard him. Touched him. Cooked breakfast for me. We traveled together. You have an eyewitness account and the church knew how important these eyewitness accounts were. And that's why they collected them and gathered them together and preserved them for people like us so that we can have fellowship with John and experience through him what he experienced with Christ. And what he experienced was a life that was made manifest. Jesus was from the beginning. John saw him, touched him, heard him. And what he saw and touched and heard was a life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. You see what it says there? Look at verse 2. We have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you. What's it say? The eternal life. John is telling us that when the Son of God came to earth, it was life being manifest in a human body. 
we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Do you think about eternal life that way? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to you that eternal life is a person. It's not just something that you receive as a, as a, as a gift, as a part of salvation. He's saying that eternal life is a person. The God that we serve is the living God, right? That life that is part of the nature and character of God, that eternal life was manifest in a human being, in Jesus Christ, became incarnate. Jesus doesn't just give eternal life. He is eternal life. John says this at the end of the letter. He says, he is the true God and eternal life. Christianity is built on the reality that the eternal Son of God, the Word of life, who is eternal life, was made manifest. Now, this is important. We live in a world that has largely embraced the ideas of we might call scientific materialism, the idea that this life is all there is and we're here as a product of time and chance. There's no designer, there's no creator, there's really nothing outside of us. So you live, you die, and that's it, it's over. But John is saying, not, not so. He's saying there's a life that was outside this universe, it preceded this universe, and it broke into this universe in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. And John says, look, I didn't just make this up, I saw him, spent time with him. I heard him. I touched him. This one who is eternal life died on a cross for our sins. But you know what? You can't kill eternal life. So he didn't stay dead. Because he is eternal life. And so he rose and now he lives. And all who believe in this Jesus have eternal life. Not just as something that he hands to you but as a part of being united with him. The fact that you have eternal life means you are united with the person who is eternal life. Isn't that amazing and encouraging and hope-giving? Now, this is objective fact. This person lived and died and rose again. You're reading an eyewitness account. And so, John wants to ground their confidence first in the objective realities that the eternal life, Son of God, was manifest, lived, died, rose again, and he was there for it. That's, that's the first source of confidence. The second source is a subjective confidence. It's more experiential. The first one talking about historical, verifiable facts and realities. The second one is, is more experiential and subjective. And I love that he does both these things. Look at verse 3 with me, please. That which we have seen and heard. What's, what's he talking about? Talking about Jesus, right? The ministry of Christ, the good news that's bound up in this person, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles proclaimed this message about Jesus. And, and what happened when they began to do that? Well, their proclamation of this message resulted in transformation and change in the lives of the people who received those, that message and responded positively, and it resulted in fellowship. It resulted in a new community called the church. It resulted in a new family, the brothers and sisters who call God as Father through Christ, their great high priest. This letter is written something like 60 years after Jesus died and rose again. And as the apostles proclaimed the risen Christ, there was this widening circle of believers entering into fellowship with them. It started in Jerusalem, right? And then it reaches out. Now, here it's in, it's in what was then called Asia. And then we know it's going to get over to Rome, and it starts with Jewish people, but by this time, it's spread to many non-Jewish, many, many Gentile people, many ethnic groups as well. And somehow that baton passing gets all the way to Fairfax Bible Church and to you and I here this morning. That proclamation results in fellowship. The Greek word for this word fellowship is a word that may be familiar to It's the word koinonia. What, what is koinonia? What is this fellowship? We proclaim this to you. We proclaim Christ to you so that you too, not just you, but you too, you can be added in with the others who've responded and are experiencing this fellowship so that you too may have fellowship with us. What is fellowship? Fellowship is it's like a shared life together. Author J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, Christian fellowship is a sharing with our fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself in hope that we may thus help them to know him better and to enrich their fellowship with him. You see, what John is doing is he's, he's extending what he knows about Christ to the people around him so that they may know Christ better and that they may have this shared life together. That's how fellowship deepens in a church. Not just spending time together, it's spending time together proclaiming Christ to one another, right? And, 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 and obeying Christ together. You're out raking leaves together, and there, you're going to have an experience of fellowship because you're not just doing that for a neighbor, you're doing that for your neighbor because Christ is leading you to do Get together for small groups. Want to get your Bibles open and make sure that in whatever, before the meeting's over, we've, we've had some proclamation of Jesus, some reminder of the gospel and the good news. That's the, the generator, the engine for our fellowship. And you know, there's a sense in which when you read your New Testament, like we're doing here today, we're entering into fellowship with these apostles, these eyewitnesses to the incarnate Christ. This is, the, this is the communion of saints. We're, we're part of something so much bigger than we are. And it's not just the people who are gathered in the name of the Lord around the world here today, but it's the people who have been gathering for 2,000 years who are waiting for us to come join them in what's going to become the new creation. We have this fellowship here and now with other believers, this communion of saints. This fellowship is made possible by Jesus Christ, and it starts not at the horizontal level, 
with each other. It starts with this fellowship that we have with him and with his Father. Because eternal life is knowing God who is eternal life, right? And so he says, this fellowship that we, we proclaim so you two may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to solve a problem. The storyline of the Bible is broken fellowship. The storyline of the Bible is alienation. The storyline of the Bible is relationships that are destroyed, first between God and human beings, and then second, between human beings. And so Jesus comes to restore what's broken, this separation from God. He's going to bring reconciliation, this spiritual death. He's going to give us new birth, new life, this alienation. There's going to be fellowship instead of, uh, 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 of this hostility. He's going to bring eternal life, this union with God, so that though we live in perilous times, we don't need to fear what's going to happen today or tomorrow. We don't even need to fear death because we've been reconciled to the God who is eternal life and we're on our way to the celestial city and at some point each one of us will make our way through that last step that but death will become a doorway for us not into just decay in the ground somewhere but death will become a doorway into the very presence of the God who is eternal life and and one day the experience of a resurrection body in a new creation that's the f- purpose that Christ came for and that's the fellowship that we've already begun to experience not only with other believers but it's the fellowship that we have with God that makes that possible now that God who is eternal life knows us as his children hears our prayers welcomes us into his family gathers us into family groups like Fairfax Bible Church and others like it who are faithfully calling on the name of the Lord this deeper, this, this fellowship that we have is deeper and more abiding than any other friendship and community experience we can have on earth. Because this fellowship that we have with one another, it's, it's going to transcend time. We're going to have fellowship with one another, not only here on this Sunday, we're going to have fellowship together in a new creation. It's a priceless gift. And when you come to faith in Christ, that fellowship, that experience of a relationship with God and a relationship with other believers is is part of the inheritance, part of the experience that you have with him. Now, that experience can be, again, subjective. It can be greater and at some points and lesser at others. And, And much of the rest of the letter, he'll be unpacking how to be sure that you're actually in that place and having that experience. And we'll look at some of that next week. How can I be sure about Christianity? Well, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants you to be sure first and most about Christ. If you're not sure, if you have questions about Christianity, anytime you have questions about Christianity, this is where we always come back to and this is where we always start. I'll tell you, when I struggle with doubts, and I find as I get older, I find I am more aware of and experiencing doubts and uncertainties than, than, than I used to. Other people may go the other direction. I, I don't know. But this is, this is my fallback place. This is where I go to. 
Did Jesus Christ really come and live and die and rise again? Did the eternal Son of God, was that eternal life actually, genuinely, truly, legitimately made manifest on earth? And when I can get my eyes back there and remember these eyewitness accounts like this and work my way through, uh, is, is this a- adequate history? Are the texts faithful? Are the transmission of those texts well done? Is this an accurate translation? I work my way through all those things and I find here I rest. Here I find help. Yes, he really did live, die, and rise again. Yes, he really will come back. No, this isn't the only world or even the best one. Jesus Christ came to bring us eternal life. John was there and he's speaking to us again today. And when we receive that eternal life, we come into a new experience with God and with his family. If you're in Doubting Castle, if you're struggling with doubts, struggling with assurance, I want to encourage you to Give yourself to this letter. Soak in this letter. Chew on this letter. Maybe you have a friend who's in Doubting Castle this morning. Friends don't let friends doubt alone. Right? Let's stick together. Doubts are often slow to flee. Christian and hopeful were stuck in Doubting Castle way longer than they wanted to be. You know, it's good for us to be committed to one another so that we can bear one another up during those times of doubts and uncertainty. We can stick together for the long haul. And you know what the outcome of all this is? I love how he ends this little section. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You might expect him to say we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That's what I, I'm always a little surprised when I read this. Like, that's kind of selfish or like, what? No, you know what he's saying? He's saying the experience that we have of the body of Christ growing so that you too may have fellowship. That's where we find our greatest joy. It's a missional heart. He loves that that these people too have been brought into the joy of the Lord. And, And no doubt through those people that he's writing to, others will be added in. And through you here this morning, others will be added in so that our joy collectively may be made full. Well, let's pray. Oh God, as we gather here this morning, we thank you for your goodness and mercy that have followed us to this place. We thank you for this faithful account by a man who saw with his own eyes the eternal life manifest in the person of Jesus. Thank you for what he heard. Thank you for how it was such a genuine experience. He touched meals together, roads traveled together. Father, I pray for those this morning who might be in Doubting Castle. I pray that you would help them find that key of promise. I pray that you would help them find relief from despair. I pray even the words of this text might minister grace and hope to them. I pray they wouldn't suffer alone, but that you would help them find a good friend to bear through this this trial with them. And I pray, Father, for this wonderful congregation. But I pray that it would be continually marked by the joy of knowing that we not only have fellowship with one another, but we have fellowship, most importantly, with you through Christ who is eternal life. Thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.